we uh, saw that the power of the God-man invoked fear in the disciples. It wasn't so much that they saw that it was him and understood and were marveling in his greatness. In fact, it wasn't that at all. They didn't recognize him. But they were observing the reality that the power of one who can walk on water is certainly unique and frightening. They, like everyone else throughout the history of the world, had never seen anyone walk on water. So whoever it was in that moment who would have been performing that genuinely miraculous, unique deed would have been fear-worthy. And so this was what was struck in the hearts of the disciples. If you have never come to grips with the frightening reality of Jesus Christ, you never experience the need to understand the joy that he provides. If you have only ever seen him as a loving welcome mat, then it's very likely that you have never really experienced the devastating blow of dreading the reality of the fact that he is, in fact, the judge and executioner of all those who continue in their total depravity and reject the free and gracious gospel that he provides to everyone who will repent and believe in him. Now, certainly not all that was going on in the hearts of the disciples in the moment when they observed him on the sea, but no doubt they feared his power. And that was the point that we observed in that text. John 6, verse 16 says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Do not water down, do not diminish the significance of the fear that they were experiencing in that moment. It is a false Jesus. It is the Jesus of man's self-loving fabrication that does not strike fear in the hearts of the enemy. It's not Jesus. About nine to 12 hours of labored rowing, they had barely made it three or four miles, which was a greater distance than what they had been attempting to go. Mark 6.48 says, And he saw them, they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So several hours past evening, uh, four watches, four times three, it's about roughly 12 hours, maybe nine hours, depending upon which part of that watch we're talking about here. This is a long time to be rowing, especially for seasoned fishermen who know what they're doing. And the winds that would have been the result of the cold wind coming down from the, if you've ever looked at a topographical map of the Sea of Galilee, you know that it sits below sea level. It's down in a pocket. It then runs southward down into the Jordan River. But to the north and the east and the west, it's surrounded by mountains. And so the cool wind from those mountains rushing down, mixing with the warmer, moist air that would have rested on the top of that water would have resulted in tornado-like winds. So that's what was thrusting them southward 
And here they are trying to get from one north corner to the other north corner and fighting, you know, painfully, Jesus says. And so they're, they're exhausted. They've been thrust out into the middle of the sea. That's not where they were headed. Matthew 14, 24 says, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land. Beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. They cried out in fear, the text tells us. So our first point from last week, which is so critical, not just to your understanding of that text, but critical for your understanding what it means to be a believer. So much of John 5, John 6 is a display of the distinction between Christian belief and false Christian belief, what we've often called false conversion. John calls many people throughout this text disciples. And especially when you get into the metaphor of he being the bread of life and he calling people to eat his flesh, it's a metaphor, they abandon him. Who abandons him? Disciples abandon him. People who have followed Jesus. It's not any different from the way it is today. There are people who follow Jesus in a non-salvific following. But they certainly follow him. There's a clear trend in their lives to be involved in religious activity. Was the case of these folks. They were following the most popular religious person of the day. Our text last week says clearly that they feared him. They cried out in fear. And this is what's missing in the gospel delivery today, right? This is what's missing in so many supposed gospel expressions that you've heard. You know, the person that chooses on his own terms what it means to be a Christian, chooses on his own terms what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. And he salves his own conscience, and he surrounds himself with people that salve his conscience, and he separates himself from people who would prick his conscience with the truth. He doesn't like those people. He likes people that can gather with him and agree, yeah, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. How many times have you heard that utterly ridiculous statement? Now listen, if somebody is saying you don't have to go to church to become a Christian, well, exclamation point, right? We wholeheartedly agree with that. In fact, the church is not the place for evangelism. The church is a place for the equipping for evangelism and therefore relationships that are growing and brewing and becoming increasingly intimate and interdependent and vibrant within the body of Christ lead to a mirror of that, somewhat of a superficial but yet very real mirror of that in relationships in the world, right? What do I mean by that when I say real but superficial? I mean there's still love. You love your enemies. There's still service. You serve people that don't know Christ. There's still kindness. There's certainly mercy. How is that? Because you're surrounded with and you're interacting with and you're interdependent with and you're serving with and you're loving and you're giving to and you're sacrificing for believers with whom you and they are becoming increasingly equipped for effective evangelism. And that started with a fear of the Savior. 
but it moves to delight. It goes from dread to delight. If, in fact, it's ever delight. It started with dread, and then it goes to real delight. Think of it. Now, now just stop for a moment. You know, wherever you are in your efforts to absorb what I'm trying to tell you, just stop for a moment and think about your own life and the lives of others that you have known. Think for a moment about those who legitimately, significantly, deeply experience the joy of knowing Jesus Christ, and in particular, when things really get difficult, that's where they go. In contrast to the person for whom, when things get difficult, he abandons the church, right? He doesn't find his joy in the body of Christ. He finds it on YouTube. He finds it in video games. He finds it elsewhere, But the person who really knows the deep, abiding, legitimately eternal joy of knowing Jesus Christ, where does he go? When things get the worst, he turns to the body. And it's not unusual. You've heard it. I've heard it. Sometimes folks will say, well, you know, I can't can't really, you know, let you guys help me because I got more pride than that. Nothing noble about rejecting God's design for the development of your life. Spiritually, trials are his design. They're his design. He, in his sovereignty, gives exactly what you need, such that when you experience the greatest difficulty, you would walk away from it, looking back on it, instead of saying, man, I'm so glad I made it through that. That was awful. Rather, you say, that was awful. But praise God for it because it was precisely what I needed. It was the exact best scenario in which I might recognize I can't depend upon myself. I need Christ, and I need his church. That's what the person who has joy in Christ does. But at the increasing willingness to reject the sovereignty of God as displayed throughout the Bible, particularly rises up in a person's life when difficulty comes. And what's nothing to do with God's sovereign design for interdependence within the body of Christ. What he wants is the ability to say, oh, I'm fine. I'm good. I got it. No problem. Yeah, you need to take care of yourself. I got me. It shows a lack of trust in Christ, a superficial trust in self, and ultimately he will lose. He's losing all the way along, even though many times he might think he's winning that battle, but he's losing all the way along. Everybody around him knows it. Pretty soon it gets so bad, there's nothing he can do about it. Well, the second thing we saw last week was that the disciples were delighted in the presence of the God-man. John 6, 20 to 21 says, But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. This is not the only time we see this in Scripture where the right response to Jesus Christ is fear. And what does he say? In your right response of fear now, do not be afraid. I'm with you. But you could easily qualify that by saying, If he is not with you, be afraid. And in particular, if you're pretending he is with you and you are with him, be afraid. And the very fact of the matter is that there probably was never, ever a time when you were afraid of Jesus. Especially if this is revolting to you, this idea of fearing the Lord. Proverbs 9.10, could it be any more clear? The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And yet, folks will do all kinds of 
lingual and experiential gymnastics to run from that reality. This delight in the presence of the God-man came on the heels of their dread of the power of the God-man. He said, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now that would be comforting after a night's long effort to get across two or three miles, and you're actually three or four miles into the trip, you know, because you're getting swung wide by the wind, and you're fighting it painfully. Immediately he transported them. That would be a great relief. Not only would they have said, wow, he's here with us. Look what he's done for us. No more rowing. We can relax. It's just a practical manifestation of his mercy that he would do that. Mark 6, 51 says, and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. So he could have said, hey, I dealt with the wind. You go ahead and row us in. Now he calmed the wind, calmed their hearts. He transported them. And then this, and this is where we ended last week, Matthew 14, 28. Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Peter's version of laying out a fleece. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So you have a display on Peter's part, who had trusted Jesus intermittently of that reality, that it was an intermittent trust. It was not pervasive, it wasn't long-term, it wasn't serious most of the time, it was foolish much of the time. But in the moment, the disciples, all of them, Peter included, were recalibrated unto the perfect, realistic understanding of the fact that this is, in fact, God in the flesh. He controls the wind. He controls matter, and he transports it at will. They worshipped him. So whatever's going on in the hearts of the disciples is good and certainly better. I would say um, that it is, in fact, spiritually immeasurably different from what's going on in the hearts of the multitudes, but there's some overlap, isn't there? With a wholehearted devotion, the masses were devoted to, really, a social gospel. If you haven't been paying much attention, I'd encourage you at least to spend a little bit of time of what took place at the Gospel Coalition Conference recently, as well as the Together for the Gospel Conference, T4G. Now these conferences, especially in their embryonic stages when they first began, were good because they were truly devoted to the gospel. But now, sadly, the Gospel Coalition is almost entirely, other than Kevin DeYoung, 
almost entirely devoted to a social gospel. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. Together for the gospel, probably split down the middle. It's tragic. Who is together for the gospel? You know the names. C.J. Mahaney, Mark Dever, Al Mohler, Legan Duncan. These are good men. Now, none of those guys are committed to the social gospel. You can trust all of those men in their teaching. But the surrounding men, Matt Chandler, the Bidi Anyabwale. If you haven't listened to Matt Chandler's message, I encourage you to listen to it. In a sense, it'll be a waste of your time. But Matt Chandler's statement about what he calls the 300 or so people who have recently left his church because he has shown himself to be committed to a social gospel, he refers to them as fools because they left. Does it publicly? Sounds very, very much like Mark Driscoll. You remember the bus thing where Mark said, get on the bus or get run over? And so as people were leaving his church in droves, he's talking about all these people who are writing in letters about his character and his conduct. His response was, well, they got run over by the bus. You know, the bus is moving fast. It's very much how Matt Chandler and Thabiti Anyabwili are speaking these days. And it has to do with race. It has to do primarily with the idea that we as Southern Baptists, although we are not a Southern Baptist denominational church, but the concept for them, most of whom are Southern Baptists, is that they would devote themselves passionately to seeking forgiveness for and apologizing for the racism and the ownership of slaves of Southern Baptists 150 plus and 200 years ago which makes absolutely zero sense. You don't owe an apology or the duty to seek forgiveness for the sins of my grandfathers or yours, nor do I for yours or mine. They did what they did. You and I do what we do. But this has become the central focus of their ministry at this point. It has become a social gospel. Now, how is this connected to our text this morning? I would say it is an extreme but very real and contemporary expression of this problem. They missed the point. They missed the point. The masses missed the point. I want you to turn with me to our text. We'll read our text, and then we will look more closely at it to understand how we might avoid such missing of the point. John 6, 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, 
then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Today we'll see that Jesus rebukes the crowd in their craving for momentary earthly fulfillment, calling them to enduring eternal contentment so that you and I might find satisfaction in the bread of life. The first thing I want you to see in this effort is that the mass craves earthly bread. They crave that which is temporary, that which satisfies momentarily. This becomes the passionate pursuit of the masses. Our text says, On the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Beware of what the crowd does. Beware of the crowd. Sometimes I think Disneyland is so full because Disneyland is so full. Where there are a lot of people, there will be more people. You know how that works. You see a crime scene. You see a car accident. All these people are gathered around. And you, of course, want to know what's going on. So you slow down and you even think about getting out of your car. That's not uncommon. Matthew seven, thirteen says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. In their misguided pursuit, the crowd often builds on its own size-driven euphoria. That was the case here. More blind, aimless people meant more blind, aimless people initially following the excitement of the signs and eventually the temporary satisfaction of a full stomach. They recognized that while the disciples had gotten into the boat without him, there was no other boat for him to have traveled in. So this stirred their curiosity. It's a mystery. They want to solve the mystery. That's really what that was about. There was no legitimate, sincere, God-honoring, spiritual motivation in their heart. They were just curious. That's why a lot of folks read the book of Revelation and almost nothing else. They're intrigued by the electricity and the imagery and the eschatological reality of things to come. So they spend all their time there and little or no time in the Gospels, little or no time thinking about holiness, little or no time thinking about evangelism, little or no time thinking about repentance, spiritual growth. Our text says other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So Tiberias was on the west coast, near the southern region. Bethsaida, near where the 25,000 or so were fed, was the northeast corner. So apparently a multitude of boats had made it there from Tiberias somehow, about eight miles, a much longer trek than the two or three mile effort on the part of the disciples in the storm. John reports that they had rowed three or four miles in about nine to 12 hours, meaning the storm had wildly taken them into the middle of the sea, way off course, 
where they would see Jesus walking on the water, only to be transported immediately to the seashore by him in his miraculous ability. This whole scene revealed the Lord's sovereign control over the whole ordeal, that the disciples would be so misguided and so driven off course, while others, in relatively the same time frame, would make it much further with little or no difficulty. That's the point of that insertion there. Why else would it be there? Verse 24 goes on to say, So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Which essentially means, how'd you get here? And as he often does, he ignores the ridiculous question. It's a far better response sometimes to a question that has no value. Not to be concerned about how he got there. He just fed 25,000 people. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. Sounds a little different from what we've heard before, right? You're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Previously, it was the signs. John 6.2 says, And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs. At this point, they're following him in order to eat. And eating was not like it is for you and me today. You know, within eight minutes, I can get to Wendy's and back. And have whatever I've purchased eaten before I walk back in the door. And it's not unusual that I actually do that. Not in Palestine. Not in Galilee. And so the euphoric experience of finding someone who can provide that basic sustenance and do so instantaneously and do so for thousands of people would, of course, nurture somewhat of a vibrant following, at least in the moment. It's about to change. If you've read through chapter 6, which I'm relatively certain you have, you know that that changes in a drastic way. No longer does the filling of the tummy and the doing of miracles, the performing of signs, provide enough euphoria and excitement. It's the call to legitimate discipleship. Turns them away. They're gone. Poof. Vaporized. But for now, he's the popular guy. He's the star. Even when the natural man places himself into a spiritual context, which is what's going on, right? They're subjecting themselves, these thousands of people, to something spiritual that's going on. That's not unusual in our day at all. That's not unusual in our church. Plenty of people will come for a while. Oh, man, that teaching really hits you between the eyes. That's not the goal of my teaching. The goal of my teaching is to be faithful to what God has said and to say it with love and with passion and trust that the Holy Spirit's going to use the faithfulness of his word in the faithful messenger as a result of the faithful receiver responding to it as the word of God and not the word of men. It ought not be exciting to you to tell people, oh man, if you come to our church, you're going to get hit between the eyes of the word of God. That's not a good thing. 
You might think it's good because what you really want is for them to get hit between the eyes. Not you. Nobody likes that. What you really ought to want is the reality of who Christ is. Not what he's going to do to punish others. But when the natural man, when the unsaved man with a spiritual flavor, right? With a spiritual or even maybe an ecclesiological veneer, When he places himself into that context, he either finds a place that he fits in, and it's all good, sort of, not really, feels good, or he finds him in a place where he doesn't fit in, and he just complains. He just hates the truth that he hears. And this would be the result of what was going on with the disciples. You know, they're following this spiritual event, you know? So Jesus exposes the fact that the multitudes are craving earthly bread, really earthly life. That's why I have it that way in your notes. But there's a hunger for that which is temporary. And the manifestation of this long term is that there is a superior desire for that to grow, right? No one's ever just satisfied with a hamburger, three meals a day. Eventually, he wants more. Eventually, he wants better. Eventually, he wants to pad the pocketbook. Eventually, the savings account becomes the issue, the retirement fund. More, 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 more. And what begins to happen is that he begins to justify his truly non-spiritual conduct by flavoring it in such a way that it looks spiritual. You know, he follows Jesus. That's what these people were doing. For earthly treasure. Some could say, look, man, they're just trying to eat. Stay tuned. And if you saw what they were initially drawn to, it wasn't food. It was the ecstasy of the miracle. And more and more, the Jews reveal themselves to be false believers, you know, trusting in their own works, trusting in what they wanted others to believe they had accomplished. But the mass is exposed, they're craving stuff in this lifetime that's the goal that's the goal I, I have to insert here perfect timing I think to talk about our upcoming discipleship series investing in heaven we didn't spend a small amount of time figuring out what we're going to do in this series we're giving you four weeks between sessions to really absorb the biblical data behind the points of dealing with debt, investing properly, developing a retirement fund so when those days come, when your earning power is less than it is now, that you're ready. But ultimately, that you would see everything you do, really every penny that passes through your hands, as an opportunity to invest in heaven. And obviously, that doesn't mean that you give every penny you ever get to the Lord. It means that every penny 
draws thoughts for you about how your life will be best spent at the end of your life for the eternal glory of Jesus Christ and the salvation of the lost. So what are your priorities? Is that a fair question? That's a fair question. What are your priorities? You know, what comes first? You might even ask this question, does what should be first even come at all? Plenty of folks who claim to be believers who literally do nothing at all to invest financially in eternity through their local church. What Jesus is exposing in the multitudes here often trickles into the body, doesn't it? You've heard the term backslidden. That's not actually a bad term because certainly there are waves in our lives of obedience. You know, I've often thought if you were to graph the spiritual growth of just about any believer, it would kind of look like this, right? Up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, with an upward trajectory all the way that ultimately you would see, yeah, there were some valleys and hills and some bumps and some mountain peaks along the way, but ultimately it was upward, meaning toward likeness to the Savior. So, you know, you start listening to a certain, I don't know, modern investment guru, and you start thinking like he thinks. And he says, you have to tithe. And if you tithe, God will bless you. And you start wondering whether or not what the Bible says about giving is actually true. You start listening to someone who's kind of in between, someone who's more of a Bible teacher who disagrees with what the Bible actually says, and he's pretty persuasive. Pretty soon you've been persuaded, and you're starting to invest in this lifetime in such a way that it reveals that you're not really investing in eternity. Well, the master calls them in their devotion to earthly bread. The master calls them to eternal bread. It's point two. Verse 27 says, do not work for the food that perishes. He's not saying don't be responsible. He's not saying don't work and pay your bills. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. The Lord says, don't work for food that perishes. Don't work for the temporary. Don't work for the temporal. Don't work for the earthly. Don't work for your efforts. Don't work for your work. Whether it's that that you do to earn money to pay the bills or that that you do spiritually, don't work for that. It's temporary. Even your best, most spirit-filled, most evangelistically effective works, they're temporary. The results are not if the Lord uses them to save people. Says the Son of Man will give you eternal life. That's why we say the Master calls them to eternal bread. He says, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Now this is where John is dealing with the incarnate reality that we're talking about a man. That beautiful. I talked to you about this interaction I was having with a guy on Facebook who was a 23-year professor at a university in Israel, and he's fighting the deity of Jesus Christ. The more I just read the Bible, you know, sometimes you believe in a doctrine, you can defend it relatively well, you know you can teach it, but then somebody denies it. And then guess what happens? You get on fire 
and you start seeing these truths throughout Scripture, you go, how did he miss this? He was sent from heaven. Who, who descends from heaven? Only God descends from heaven. Only God was in heaven. Nobody comes from heaven but God. Over and over and over. The I am statements. The fact that he is the definite article, the son of God. Nobody else is the son of God. There are sons of God, but he's the son of God. You know, in Hebrews, God calls the son God. Well, this is an expression of the father's dealing with the son as a man. He commissioned him. He placed his seal on him. When a king placed his seal on someone, what did that person do? What was that person's activity, his conduct thereafter? What was he doing when the king's seal was on a servant, on a messenger? What was that person doing? He was representing the king as if what? As if he was the king. But he carried the fullness of the king's power in the sense that he represented him commissioned by the Father. Then they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Again, he ignores the question. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. He doesn't answer the question at all. He uses some similar terminology. But many times, you may have experienced this, when you're having a spiritual discussion with someone and you ignore their question, which is sometimes the reasonable and right thing to do when you're bombarded with silly questions, eventually, you know, you start ignoring that question and start dealing with what they really need to hear when you realize you're making no headway otherwise. And often what will happen is you will say what needs to be said and they don't even realize that you ignored their question and that's what happens here. They have no idea that he's ignored their question. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? It's a mind-boggling question. Why on earth would you want to know that? Unless, of course, you wanted to appease God in light of the condition of your soul with your works and not his. Hmm. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, this is loaded with theology. This is the work of God, that you believe in him. That is to say that when you believe in him, it is the work of God that caused it. That's what it is. That's the work of God. When God performs a work, when Christ died on the cross, he accomplished the atonement of the elect. That's the work of God. That's what we're seeing here. That's what Jesus himself is saying. Now, he hadn't died yet, but he had told them he was going to die. And if they were listening, they would have heard that. And if they had heard that with the right ears, with spiritual ears, and with a soft heart, and with open eyes, then they would have remembered it, and they would have wanted to know more about what that meant. But even the disciples didn't embrace that. 
Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The other side of the theology in this statement is that you must believe in the work of God. You must believe in him whom he has sent. Listen to Paul's doctrinal expression of this in Romans 4, beginning with verse 3. Listen to this. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what is it that leads to the gift of Christ's righteousness? You know, you don't have your own righteousness. If you have ever spent any time with you, you know that. But if you are in Christ, you have his righteousness. You bear his righteousness. We call this imputation. It is the legal declaration of God that the believer bears the righteousness of Christ, and therefore he pursues personal holiness. He loves to please God with his thinking, with his speech, with his conduct, with where his eyes go. He wants to restrict his own eyes from looking at things that are going to defile his heart. So he sets up parameters called believers. He surrounds himself with godly people who are devoted to holiness in heart attitudes and conduct and speech and where the eyes go. That's what he does. That's what he does. Paul here says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was the transaction of belief. It was the moment of regeneration when now he's got a new set of desires. His will is changed. God has changed his will. And he no longer looks askance at the word of God. He no longer distrusts trustworthy people. That's what happens in the life of a believer. Sometimes it's very, very difficult. New belief, the life for the brand new believer is sometimes riddled with momentary willingness to abandon the faith because of the habits and the patterns of a previous life. And that's a hard, hard reality. What's the role of the body of Christ? It's to love them and to show them grace and kindness and mercy and be willing to say, you know, I was backslidden in my life for a time. Not sure I was a believer or not, but certainly this person has shown some legitimate devotion to follow Jesus. And I want to be part of the transformation in that person's life. I want to be part of his Mental transformation, Romans 12, 1 and 2, the transformation, the renewing of the mind, no longer a conformity to the world. Colossians 3, setting your mind on things above, no longer things on this earth. I want to be part of that with this new believer who's struggling and falling and bringing destruction upon himself. I want to be part of that. I want to, Galatians 6, be gentle with him. I want to bear his burdens because that's what spiritual people do, according to Paul there in Galatians 6. You who are spiritual, with gentleness, bear one another's burdens. As the master calls them to eternal bread, he sets a fortress of theology in place. And Paul picks up with that in Romans 4. And Paul says in Romans 4, 4, now, To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Now, don't read 
your secular job into this text. That's not at all what he's talking about. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes him and he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. See, the the multitudes are a, a massive group of people against whom the Lord was counting their sins in the moment. He's appealing to them to receive the bread of life and to not work for temporal bread. Are works important? Absolutely. You're predestined for them. Ephesians 2.10 for we are his workmanship. So that's one work. That's the model work, you know, the creation of mankind. We are his workmanship, not just in our creation, but in our regeneration, the new creation, right? Created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's why you're saved. Do you know that? You know you're saved. You know you're a Christian to do good works. That's what Paul's saying which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So again, you have the sovereign decree that it's going to happen, and then you have man's responsibility that he must involve himself. Verse 30 in our text, so they said to him, then in that case, what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. This is absolutely stunning. What work do you do? Are you kidding? He just fed 25,000 or so people with a couple of fish and some crackers. What work does he do? You have no idea how he got across the sea. And you're fumbling and bumbling, asking ridiculous questions about how that might have happened when he turned water into wine. And he's healed two unhealable people, miraculously. Well, there's more on this. The parallel text in Matthew 14, verse 34 says, And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. That's Chinnereth, if you're familiar with Old Testament geography. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him, listen to this, all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. Listen to this. And as many as touched it were made well. The number of people that Jesus healed physically in those days was not something that anybody could keep track of. Everyone who touched the fringe of his garment, not just the woman with the blood disease, everybody. Real healing, not Benny Hinn healing. You know, where people who really have an ailment are ushered off to the side and hidden from the cameras, where the actors are placed in such a way that everybody on national, really international television can can see it. 
Mark 6, 53, which would be Peter's recollection of this event. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. It would have been multiple upon multiple, thousands upon thousands of people who had experienced some significant infirmity that no one could help. There were no doctors then, not really. You know, back then, if you had a problem with your your knee, you go to the doctor and he would say, yeah, you got a knee problem. That's about the extent of what you would have experienced. You know, um, I don't know, drink a lot of water. And here Jesus is just wiping the world clean of fall-based infirmity. And the mass says to him, what sign do you do that will believe you? It's just stunning. You know, you might liken it in your own life to the reality that God has done so much for you and in the moment when despair hits your life, you say, What's God going to do here? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Our text goes on to say that Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread of heaven. That's a double statement, and I don't mean double meaning. I mean, he's saying two things. The one is that it wasn't Moses that provided that earthly bread for you. It was God. And by the way, now he's providing eternal bread. What Moses provided was a foreshadowing of the bread of life. And it lasted a long time. How long? 40 years. That's a long time. That's a rather extensive expiration date, with no preservatives, by the way. And here, that's the best they know to ask for. They remind him of Moses' work, that their fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. It's all they can relate this to. Jesus says, that wasn't wasn't Moses. Moses was but a vehicle. That was the Lord. Oh, but by the way, my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. That was a mirror. That was an image foreshadowing. For the bread of God is, listen to this, He. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now go back to John 3 for a moment. You can turn there if you want. It's not too far from where you are. Verse 9. John 3, 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Remember that? How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Same with the masses. You know, someone who is healed is expressive of a physical work. It's a spiritual work on a physical entity. If you don't believe that, if that's not enough, if feeding 5,000 people, 25,000 people is not enough, 
then why in the world would we think something that's actually heavenly is going to be enough? Why would we expect you to believe heavenly things when you don't believe earthly things? Colossians 3, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Jesus is calling them to that which is eternal. He's calling them to recognize the reality that God freely gives the bread of eternal life to all those who will receive it. And yet they would rather have a full stomach. That's their focus. Final verse in our text this morning. They said to him, sir, give us this bread. Now if they'd stopped there, we wouldn't have a problem with it. But there's an adverb that modifies the word give. Give us this bread always. It's an indication of the fact that they haven't gotten it. They haven't understood that he's talking about eternal life. They're still focused on that which is going to fill their stomachs. Well, whatever that bread is, who does this remind you of? Woman at the well. That water I'd like. If I don't have to come here in the middle of the, the day, in the, the heat of the day, you know, and fetch water, That'd be great. So, I'll, yeah, I'll take that water. Where's that soda fountain? And here you have the same exact mentality. Give us that bread and keep giving us that bread. Jesus' point is you get that bread once and it lasts forever. It's a metaphor. He is the bread. You don't, like Roman Catholics, get him and lose him and get him and lose him and get him and lose him and get him. You know, like the charismatic movement. When you have Jesus, you have Jesus, and your life is evidence of that. Your life is evidence of that in that you trust in him. You're not focused on what he provides. I would go so far as to say that sometimes we might be a little too focused on the gospel. Now, you might never, ever have thought you would hear me say those words. But here's what I mean by that. Sometimes we might be so focused on what we get from the gospel that we've forgotten the reality that our portion is Christ. And so, I got eternal life. Yep. You might even be overjoyed about your sanctification. You know, you're finally starting to get some rhythm and some traction in your sanctification, and you forget about Jesus in the whole thing. I mean, it's possible. But the ultimate role of the gospel is to produce in us a love for the Savior. Not a secular kingship, right? They just went through that. They were just admonished by his rapid departure when they attempted to make him king. It wasn't time yet. They didn't want him to be theological king. They wanted him to be military king. And so he stepped away. They're saying, keep giving us these crackers. The manna only lasted 40 years. You have earthly bread that will keep giving to us? We want that. Makes me think of Isaiah 55, 2. 
Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Next time we will look at John 6.35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Born into extreme wealth, C.T. Studd had everything a man in the late 19th and early 20th century might want. And he traded it all. He traded it all for missions. Became a missionary to China, and then India, eventually Africa. Very wealthy, born into great prominence, a lot of money. In his personal written testimony, he gives this account. One day when I was reading the harmony of the Gospels, I came to where Christ talked with the rich young man. Then God seemed to bring all the vows I had made back to me. A few days later, the post, which came only every half month, brought letters from the solicitor and banker to show what I had become heir to. Then God made me just ordinarily honest and told me what to do. Then I learned why I had been sent to that particular place. I needed to draw up papers giving the power of attorney And for that, I had to have the signature of one of Her Majesty's officers. So what's happening here is he's attempting to give away all his money. I mean, we're talking massive wealth. And he's choosing to sign it over. And so the requirement is that he get a signature from an officer of the court. I went to the consul, and when he saw the paper, he said, I won't sign it. You don't know what you're doing. Finally, he said that he would give me two weeks to think it over, and then if I wished, he would sign it. I took it back at the end of two weeks, and he signed it, and off the stuff went. God has promised to give a hundredfold for everything we give to him, and hundredfold is a wonderful percentage. It is 10,000%. God began to give me back the hundredfold wonderfully quick. Not long after this, I was sent down to Shanghai. My brother, who had been very ill, had gone right back into the world again. On account of his wealth, the doctors sent him round the world in search of better. I thought he would just come and touch for a moment at Shanghai and see me. He said he was not going to stay very long, for he was mighty afraid he would get too much religion. He took his birth for Japan about the next day after he arrived. But God soon gave him as much religion as he could hold, and he canceled that passage to Japan and stayed with me six months. When I saw that brother, right soundly converted, I said, this is 10,000% and more. Think of that brother. For some of you, that spouse. Your kids, coworkers, neighbors. That's the eternal investment. Lord, we bow before our Savior, whom we hope to love better and better. And we acknowledge that we are drawn by the trappings of, 
of the world. Lord, may we, of course, for your favor and for the glory of your Son, honor you and please you that we would walk by God the Spirit in our endeavors to live a life that is ultimately, at the end, completely spent, invested in heaven. But Lord, may we never forget the practical reality of the twofold response Jesus gave to what the greatest commandment is. That it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But that the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And may we, as a result, find ourselves passionately interested in investing in heaven. That we would not find ourselves dreading the Savior on the day of visitation. But that we, as we delight in him today would experience fullness and completion of that delight when he returns. Amen.